The following sermon by Jonathan Edwards is based on 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Know ye not your own selves. Persons ought not to rest ignorant and unresolved about their own state, whether they are real Christians or not. There were in the church of Corinth some that were adversaries to Paul and his doctrine, certain false teachers that labored to seduce the Christian Corinthians, and to that end industriously cast reproach and calumnies on the Apostle Paul. They seemed to have charged him with lightness, and not coming to them according to his promise, with contemptibleness in his person, that however his letters seemed weighty and powerful, yet his bodily presence was mean and his speech contemptible. By these and other such means they endeavored to draw away the Corinthians from the doctrine that the Apostle had taught them. And the Corinthians so much gave ear to them, some of them at least, though things necessitated the Apostle not only to vindicate his own name and reputation by declaring what God had done for him and by him, but also to threaten them with using that power that Christ had given him against offenders, as in the foregoing verses of this chapter. And because there were such evils amongst them, this occasions the apostle in the verse of the text to be putting them upon examining themselves and trying their own state, whether they are real Christians or not. In the verse may be observed, number one, what is the thing to be judged of, namely, whether they were in the faith or whether Christ was in them. Though all made a profession of Christ and of the faith, the words imply that a man may make profession of the Christian faith and not be in the faith, and that a man may profess to be a follower of Christ and yet not have Christ dwelling in him. Number two, the means to be used in order to judging, namely examining and proving themselves. Number three, the arguments or motives the apostle makes use of to stir them to it, which are two. Number one, the absurdity of being ignorant of themselves. Know ye not your own selves, if they did not know whether they were in the faith or not, whether Christ was in them or not, it was their own salvation that they were ignorant of. For a man not to be acquainted with others, that he seldom sees, and has but little opportunity to converse with, was no wonder. And if he did not know some of his near neighbors and relatives, that was not so much to be wondered at. But for a man to be a stranger to his own self, there is a great absurdity in it, and no man ought to rest in such ignorance. Number two. The second motive the apostle uses is the great importance of knowing, because if Christ was not in them, they were reprobates. By reprobates here is not intended the same sense in which it is commonly used by divines for those that are in God's eternal decree reprobated to eternal damnation. We can't suppose that the apostle means that any man that has not Christ now dwelling in them is decreed to eternal punishment. Christ is not in him now, yet he may be in him afterwards. He may be converted before he dies. But by reprobates is intended here the same as false professors. The word in the original signifies disapproved or rejected by the all-seeing God. He sees and proves all professors of Christianity, and some he approves as sincere and real Christians, 
and others he rejects and disapproves of as not being of the right sort. Every professor either stands approved or disapproved in the sight of God. They that are disapproved, the apostle calls reprobates. God deals with professors as a husbandman deals with his wheat and chaff, or wheat and tares. Both grow together, but one is separated, one is approved, and the other rejected. Or as the goldsmith does by the silver and the dross. The dross may glisten and look like silver, but the goldsmith tries it and finds it not true silver, and so rejects it. And this is called reprobate silver, Jeremiah 6, verse 30. Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord has rejected them. Doctrine. Persons ought not to rest ignorant and unresolved about their own state, whether they are real Christians or not. Reason number one. It is not a thing impossible for a person to come to the knowledge of his own state. Not only conversion is a thing attainable, but also the knowledge of it. The knowledge of one's conversion, in some cases, may be obtained with difficulty. Many persons that are truly converted may be ignorant of their conversion. They may be in doubt about their condition and not be able for the present to resolve the case. No, not by the most strict examination they are capable of, by the rule of God's word and by those signs that are there given. But this is not because the knowledge of one's conversion is in itself a thing unattainable, but because of weakness of grace, or the prevalence of corruption, or the particular infirmity, or temptations, or error, or ignorance that attend that person. But the knowledge of our own state is a thing attainable. Wicked men may know that they have no grace, and godly men may come to know that they have grace. This is evident because we are directed in God's word to use means to know, as in the text. We are directed to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, and approve ourselves. To this end, that we may know our own selves. But if the knowing of ourselves in this respect were impossible, why does the Apostle give us directions in order to it? And so the Apostle Peter directs persons to endeavor for this, Second Peter 1, verse 10. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. But if it never could be made sure, then such instructions are of no value. If a man could not know that Christ is in him, why then a man is not to be blamed that he doesn't know? And why then does the apostle blame the Corinthians for it, as he evidently does in these words of the text, Know ye not your own selves? Where is the absurdity of not knowing oneself, or what wonder is it if we don't know our own selves, if this be a thing impossible? And again it is evident that this may be known, because the scripture tells us how we may know, 1 John 2, 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, 5. Hereby know we that we are in him. 1 John 3, verse 19, Hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. 1 John 3, verse 24, Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he has given us. 1 John 4, 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Holy Spirit. Why does the Apostle tell us so much, whereby we may know we are of the truth? 
if there be no such thing as knowing. Seeing therefore the knowledge of a person's state is attainable, persons should not rest ignorant and unresolved about their own state, whether they are real Christians or not. Number two. Persons, as long as they remain unresolved about their condition, in many instances can't know what is proper for them to do or what work they have before them. If persons are in a natural condition, then they should behave accordingly. It is proper they should consider the misery and dolefulness of their own circumstances and cry earnestly to God to have pity upon them and to pluck them as brands out of the burning and in other respects carry himself as natural persons should do, that is, seeking deliverance from a natural condition. And if they are in a converted state, then it belongs to them to bless and praise the name of God for so great a mercy. Admire free grace to them, rejoice in God's goodness, and to love God. How unfit for his kindness that God should bestow such an infinite mercy on persons, that they should receive from him, and they not bless and praise him for it. Then if God gave them all the kingdoms of the world, and they never bless God for it. But this persons can't do, as long as they are at a loss and unresolved about their state. Persons ought not to rest in such a state in which they can't do the work that is proper for them to do. Number three. A state of uncertainty and doubting is a very uncomfortable state. Not to know whether they are the children of God or the devil, whether at peace with God or not, whether sins or pardon are still marked against us, whether God is our friend or our enemy, whether we are the objects of God's favor or wrath, heirs of heaven or hell, it is exceeding uncomfortable living in such circumstances, and oftentimes it occasions great distress and uneasiness and terrible darkness to the godly. The godly, if they apprehend themselves in a natural state and exposed to the wrath of God, are liable to more dreadful distresses and terrors than the wicked, for they have a greater sense of the greatness of God and the dreadfulness of his anger, more realizing sense of a future world know the truth of threatenings, and have more of a sense of the misery of being separated from Jesus Christ, and they are sensible that he is the fountain of all good and happiness. The godly ordinarily have a far greater sense of the dreadfulness of a natural condition than awakened sinners have. And therefore, it is no wonder then if they think themselves to be in a natural condition. An experience shows that they are liable to dreadful distresses when in doubt about their state. Therefore, persons, as they seek their own comfort, ought not to rest in a state of ignorance and stay unresolved about their own condition, but should use all possible means to be resolved. Number four. A confirmed uncertainty and unresolvedness in this matter tends many ways to the prejudice of the soul. If persons are unconverted, to remain ignorant of it may be to their everlasting ruin, because it may prevent their ever obtaining conversion. He that is ignorant of his disease is not very likely to obtain a cure. And if persons are converted, to be ignorant of it tends many ways to a person's hurt. It exposes him to many temptations. It is visible by experience that Satan takes great advantage by it to ply persons with his temptations and fiery darts. 
particularly hence, he may take occasion to stir up unbelief and sometimes a murmuring spirit. For the godly are not free from such corruption, and sometimes this brings godly persons into an habitual melancholy, whereby they are disposed to look on everything on the darkest side, and are often in a great measure hindered of the free use of their reason about spiritual things, incapacitated for all duty, and dreadfully exposed to the temptations of the devil. For there is perhaps nothing in the world unless it be corruption, that Satan makes a greater handle of than the disease of melancholy. On the contrary, number five, for persons to have the knowledge of themselves in this respect tends greatly to their soul's benefit. If they are in a natural condition, then to know it tends to awaken them and put them upon self-examination, and to humble them, and convinces them of their lost and helpless condition. If they are converted, it ordinarily tends greatly to their benefit to know it, because it tends greatly to enliven their graces and draw forth their exercises. A true hope exceedingly cherishes grace. It tends to draw forth love to God. It tends to cause exercises of humility and repentance and thankfulness. It tends to give an humble and admiring sense of the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. And it strengthens and enlivens faith. The past experience of God's truth and faithfulness manifested in pardoning and saving them helps them more confidently still to trust in God's faithfulness. Psalm 77, 9 and 10 Has God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. The thought of God's love to them, who are so unworthy, tends to make them more sensible of the sufficiency of God's mercy and the love of Christ. Christ's having been sufficient for them, they can testify by their experience to his sufficiency to save sinners, and that there is enough in him to save those that are exceeding vile and unworthy. A true hope abundantly tends to give persons courage and resolution in their Christian course. It engages their hearts in God's service and helps them to overcome the difficulties that are in their way. Romans 5, verses 4 and 5. And patience worketh experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. The saints will go on towards heaven with abundantly more cheerfulness and earnestness when they see and know where they are going. And it is to be seen by abundant experience that when God's people have been greatly exercised with doubts about their condition, and they afterwards come to be considerably satisfied, it soon has a great effect upon them to cause the more lively exercises of grace. While a saint is under great doubts about his condition, his soul oftentimes is like the face of the earth in the winter. Things seem to be dead like the trees. Though they have life in them, it lies dormant. The grass and herbs have no life but what is hidden in the root and seeds underground. But when such a soul comes to see the happy circumstances it is in, and to have a lively hope, it often is like the warm sunbeams in the spring. It causes those things that seem to be dead to spring and put forth and appear lively and bountiful. Faith 
is strengthened and love drawn forth, and humble thankfulness and praise is excited. The saints often, when much doubting about their condition, are afraid to receive that comfort that God sometimes offers them, and therefore resist it and shut it out. They dare not lay themselves open to it, which is a very ill consequence of a doubting state. Application number one. Use of instruction. Hence we learn that it is the duty of ministers, as far as they are able by their instructions, to help those that are under their care to the knowledge of their state. Ministers are set to be pastors or shepherds of their congregations and are to feed and to take care of their flocks as a shepherd his flock. And he is to deal with every one of the flock according to their several states and circumstances. He must, after the example of the good shepherd, gather the lambs with his arm and gently lead those that are with young. He must have compassion of them that are out of the way and must heal the lame and the wounded. It is the minister's duty, as far as in him lies, to undeceive those that are deceived, and to think themselves something when they are nothing, and so to guide them and to help them to the knowledge of their state. And so they ought also, as far as may be, to help the godly that are in darkness and doubt about the state and condition that they are in. A minister ought to deal as a faithful and wise steward who gives to everyone his portion of meat in due season, Luke 12, verse 42. He ought to give the unawakened sinner the portion of meat that belongs to him, and to the awakened, and to the saint, or person that is converted. And herein he is to use the wisdom, judgment, and discretion that God gives him, as is evident because it is said, as a faithful and wise steward, there is need of wisdom in order to know what portion of meat belongs to every one. But yet the portion of meat is not to be withheld. Comfort and hope is a portion of meat that belongs to the godly. It is as much the work of the minister to speak comfortably to the godly as to awaken sinners. A minister is to speak a word in season to him that is weary, that seasonable word to them that have been weary and are converted is a word of peace and comfort. Christ, a great shepherd of the sheep, was sent to heal the brokenhearted and to comfort those that mourn. And the ministers of Christ are to do the same as his ministers and workers together with Christ. The false teachers of the Jews are blamed that they heal the hearts of the daughters of God's people slightly. Jeremiah 6, verse 14, and cried, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. But they would not have been blamed if they had healed their wound after it had been thoroughly searched and cried, Peace, peace, when there was peace. The priests of old was to take great care not to pronounce the leprous person clean too soon. And if it was doubtful whether he was cleansed, he was to shut him up seven days more. But when he was evidently cleansed, after he had looked upon him and examined his circumstances, he was to pronounce him clean. But only ministers must take care to do what they do only as ministers and as fallible men, not pretending to a power to look upon others' hearts, but only as holding forth and applying the instructions and rules of Christ to their consciences, not pretending to search the conscience or to see and know what it is that they are conscious to themselves of. A minister is set to be a teacher and guide to his flock in all such knowledge, 
as is needful for the good of their souls. But I have already shown under this doctrine that this is one sort of knowledge that is needful for the good of souls, namely, that persons should know their own state. And therefore he is to be a guide in this affair as well as others. As people are not to receive what is taught them in this manner upon the credit of a minister, it is true. And no more are they to receive what a minister teaches in points of doctrine or duty and practice upon his word. But yet it doesn't follow that therefore a minister ought not to guide and instruct his people in points of doctrine and practice. They are to submit to him in both cases as holding forth the word of God to them, their understanding and reason, and pointing forth to their reason and consciences the right application of it to their case. And therefore, this is what a minister has to do in this affair of instructing others concerning their own state. First, he must hold forth and explain the rules of trial that the word of God gives. And next, he must apply those rules to particular cases and show to men's own reason and consciences wherein such and such particular cases, which they declare and inquire about, agree and disagree with those rules leaving it to the inquiry of their consciences whether what they declare is indeed their case. And in this a minister is to be hearkened to as one fit to be a guide to their souls. It is a very wrong notion that some entertain that persons in such cases don't need any instruction of ministers. In some cases they may not, but very frequently they do as much as in any case whatsoever. For persons that are truly converted may be, and very frequently are, ignorant of their state, both these ways, namely, as they don't know what the qualifications are that are necessary to godliness, and they don't know how to understand rules, and this shows they always misunderstood them before conversion, and secondly, they are ignorant how to apply them and need help in it very much. There is often a great deal of difficulty through the darkness of their minds and the prejudice entertained before conversion and temptations of Satan. It is not always sufficient to guide persons in practice, for a minister only to explain the rules of duty in general, but in many cases persons need to inquire particularly whether this or that be their duty. And so in order to their being resolved, they need to have a minister apply the scripture rules of duty to that particular case. So it oftentimes is with respect to persons' knowledge of their state. They need not only to have the scripture rules of trial in general explained, but also to be showed where such and such cases agree or disagree with those rules. And experience abundantly teaches the necessity of evidence in this affair. Persons without it would be exceedingly exposed to the adversary of souls and to all manner of mischief. And how can the shepherd of the flock discharge a good conscience and holiness peace when he sees those mischiefs coming in a soul that might probably be avoided by his doing what he might towards leading that person into the understanding of his own state? In the 13th chapter of Ezekiel, at the 22nd verse, God blames the false teachers of the Jews that they had with their lies made the hearts of the righteous sad, whom he had not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life, which seems to hold forth that they ought to have done contrary ways. 
namely to have comforted the hearts of those whom God had comforted, and to have strengthened the hands of the righteous, and those that had returned from their evil way by showing them their title to the promise of life. Persons ought not to rest ignorant, whether they are real Christians or not. Doctrine resumed. The second thing proposed, number two, what are just grounds for persons to doubt of their good estate? If you have taken yourself to be a converted man, and aren't a convinced man, then you have reason to doubt of your good estate i.e., if you think yourself to be converted and aren't convinced of sin. If you don't carry about with you an habitual conviction of the heinousness of sin, of its dangerous nature, and of your being a sinful creature, you have reason to doubt of your good estate. There are some men that are convinced men in some measure that are not converted. That is, men may have considerable convictions of sin and wrath, and yet not be converted men. But no man is a converted man that is not a convinced man. It is not sufficient in your trial of yourself, and about this manner, to say that you were once convinced, but if you are a godly man, you still are a convinced man. You have an habitual conviction upon your heart. There is no necessity that men, in order to their being godly, should be under fears and tears, as awakened sinners commonly are, but yet they must be convinced men. There is different terrors and convictions. Fears and terrors in natural men are the fruits of their convictions and not convictions themselves. Natural men are in fears and terrors because they are convinced of the guilt and dangerousness of sin. But this terror is not the same thing with their conviction of the guilt and dangerousness of sin, but the effect of it. And it has that effect upon natural men because they lie under the guilt of sin. But godly men may have conviction of the guilt and dangerousness of sin without that effect, because they are not under the guilt of it. Convinced sinners, when they come to be converted, their terror and distress commonly ceases, but their convictions don't cease. They're as much convinced of the dreadful nature of sin and terribleness of its consequences as they were before, and commonly a great deal more. Commonly men, after they are converted, have a greater sense of the heinousness of sin and the dreadful guilt it brings, and of the dreadfulness of God's wrath, than ever they were before. And yet this need not cause any terror in them, because the sin is so heinous and God's wrath so dreadful, yet God forgives and Christ stands between them and wrath. And the convictions that are given to the elect before their conversion are given to be of use to them, not only before conversion, but afterwards too, which could not be if their convictions cease as soon as they are converted. They are convinced of sin and brought to a great sense of wrath before their conversion, that they may always have a dread of sin and stand in awe of God as long as they live. There are some persons that look upon themselves converted 
that are obdurate, senseless persons, and they have no other peace but what consists in their obduracy. They have had perhaps some convictions and some religious affections in time past, and that was all the good that they did them, namely to make them senseless. It is commonly the effect of a false hope that it makes those that have it very stupid and senseless, and herein it differs from a true hope. Those that have a true hope, they have with their hope a sense of what a dreadful thing sin is, and what an awful being God is, and how dreadful his anger is, what a dreadful condition they should be in if they had not an interest in Christ, what sinful creatures they are. But a false hope, it burdens the heart and stupefies the conscience and makes men very senseless. A hypocrite with a false hope is commonly an hardened, stupid wretch that has no great sense what a dreadful thing it is to offend God, no great sense of a future judgment and what an awful thing it is to appear before God, no great sense of the shortness and uncertainty of life, no great sense of the all-seeing eye of God and the like but is a secure and senseless sinner. And indeed there is no security worse, none more rooted and established and difficultly cured than that which has its foundation in a false hope. Examine yourself, therefore, you that think yourself a converted person, whether or not you are a convinced person, or whether or not you are not very senseless about these things that God is wont to make persons sensible of when they are under awakenings. Is your hope attended with a sensible, tender conscience, or does it, on the contrary, stupefy your conscience? Don't deceive yourself. Don't mistake carnal security for a true peace, for there is a vast difference between them. Are you one of those whose hearts are tender? Are you one that has an awful sense of the displeasure of God and dread, whatsoever is displeasing and provoking to him? Is God your fear and your dread, according to Isaiah 8, verse 13? Are you one of Job's disciples who says in Job 31, 23, destruction from God was a terror to him, and by reason of his highness I could not endure? Are you one that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembles at God's word, agreeable to Isaiah 66, verse 2, and also Nazareth 9, verse 4? Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, and also 10, verse 3, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that trembled at the commandment of our God, and Isaiah 66, verse 5. Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word, and are of the psalmist's spirit. Psalm 119, verse 120. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid. Do you not, on the contrary, flattering yourself in a false hope, go on in a careless, senseless way of living? Number two. If you think yourself godly and depend on your supposed godliness as your righteousness to command you to God, then you have reason to doubt of your good estate. There is such a sort of person who thinks themselves godly, 
holy persons, and this is a righteousness they depend upon for acceptance with God, that however they may pretend to be humbled and have been brought off from their own righteousness, and to depend alone on Christ's righteousness for justification, do indeed come to God in their own righteousness. But when persons do so, it is a sign they have no godliness. Men have not been justified by their righteousness, or by any goodness or righteousness inherit in them. No, not by true and real goodness. The saints are not justified or accepted with God for their true holiness. But it is for the holiness or righteousness sake of Christ alone. It is by nothing inherent in them, but alone by what is inherent in Christ. And no man has any warrant to trust in his own goodness for acceptance with God. No, not though that goodness be real and sincere. It is no excuse for a man's trusting in his own goodness that he looks upon that which he trusts in to be real and saving. The Pharisee that we read of, that trusted in himself that he was righteous, Luke 18, verse 9, and so on, he thought himself a truly godly man. And the righteousness that he trusted to, he thought was true godliness. Yea, he evidently thought himself not only truly godly, but very eminently so. Otherwise he would not have spoken so boastingly of himself in prayer. They that are truly godly, their own godliness is not the righteousness that they depend upon for acceptance with God. No, they see their godliness so imperfect, see so much sin in themselves, see that they come so much short in everything. They see themselves at best such vile, filthy creatures that they see that their goodness can't commend them to God, that their godliness is no wise fit to be offered to God for righteousness to commend them to God's favor, and that if they had no other righteousness than their own godliness to appear before an infinitely holy God, they should be most miserable." On the contrary, many of them that entertain a false hope, their supposed godliness is their dependence for justification. They are proud of their godliness, they have a high conceit of themselves for it. And this is what they think commends them to God's acceptance and love, that they are such holy persons. A natural man may think that he is humbled, but then he is proud of his humiliation. He may think that he has had a thorough work of the law, that he is thoroughly brought off from his righteousness, but he is proud of it and makes a righteousness of that. He may think that he is brought out of himself, but then that is the very thing that he is filled with himself about. He may think that he believes in Christ and trusts in him alone for salvation, but then he is proud of that and makes a righteousness of his faith. Persons of false experiences do herein differ from them that are of true experience, that they are very proud of their experiences. They are proud of them before God. They come to God from time to time with strong hopes, with great confidence. But that is the confidence in which they come, namely, their own holiness. That consideration of their own holiness and not the sufficiency of Christ is the thing that makes them bold. They think that they are eminently holy and that it is no presumption for such holy men as they to come before God boldly. Such men commonly have a high opinion of themselves and are often thinking how eminently holy they are. They are admirers of themselves and think a great deal more of their own excellencies 
than they do of the excellency of Christ. They take more notice of their own supposed graces than they do of the encouragements of the gospel to poor unworthy sinners. Such persons as these are ready to lift up themselves above others. Instead of thinking others better than themselves, as the apostle directs, Philippians 2 verse 3, they think themselves better than others. Their experiences they have cover over and hide their corruptions. They are ready to think that they have but little sin. They are of that spirit spoken of in Isaiah 65 verse 5, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Thus the self-righteous Pharisees we read of in Luke 18 verse 9 trusted themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Whereas the true Christian's hope makes them pity natural men and long for their salvation, these despise them and lift themselves above them. When the case is thus, it is a sign that persons never have been thoroughly humbled, that they never have seen themselves, never have been brought off from their own righteousness. For though men have no need of a legal humiliation after he is converted, yet that conviction concerning him that is given while under that work of humiliation remains afterward. He has it habitually, he never forgets it, yea, he has it in a much better manner than before. Conversion is so far from taking away that conviction that a man had under a legal humiliation of his own sinfulness, and nothingness, and helplessness, that it helps him to see it more fully and clearly and brings him yet lower before God. The true Christian, the more comfort and joy he has, the more abased and humble he is. The greater discoveries he has of God and Christ, the greater discoveries he has of his own vileness and pollution. When he has extraordinary discoveries of a true and saving nature, he is ready to cry out with Isaiah in the sixth chapter of his prophecy at the fifth verse, Woe is me! He sees so much of his own present as well as past vileness that he sees there is no depending but upon Christ, and if Christ was taken away, he should be most miserable. Examine yourself, therefore, strictly as to this matter. For the pride and self-righteousness of the heart of man is subtle and secret beyond all account. Number three. If you have taken yourself to be a converted man and aren't altered as former ill practices and bad qualities, if you formerly were a vain person or sensual person, or an intemperate person and still are such, you have reason to think that your hope is vain. Some persons may be reformed men that are not converted men, but none are converted that are not reformed men. Conversion is a turning from sin to God, and they that aren't turned from sin are not turned to God. That conversion that is not a conversion from sin is no real conversion. Conversion is an universal change. This is a change of the heart and of the life. It is a change of the whole man, and therefore persons, when they are converted, are said to put on the new man. There is not only a new heart, but a new tongue and new hands, and all the members of the body are new. Whereas before they were instruments of iniquity to iniquity, now they are become the instruments of righteousness to holiness, Romans 6, verses 18 and 19. A man may be reformed so as to be restrained from sin before he is converted. 
But when he is converted, he is more than restrained from sin. He is turned from it and made an enemy to it. A man may in a great measure forsake sin in outward practice before he is converted. But when he is converted, he not only forsakes it in outward practice, but in the heart. He does more than forsake it in outward practice, and therefore they that don't do so much may conclude they are not converted. He that is not converted may be restrained from sin, but he that is converted is divorced from it, which is more than to be restrained from it. If there be no sensible alteration in you as to those things that were your bad qualities, if before your supposed conversion you were notedly worldly, and there be no sensible difference, but now you seem to be as worldly as ever, if before you appear to be remarkably close and selfish, niggardly and narrow-spirited, backward to do anything for the public or the poor, and it is not to be perceived but that you are still so as much as ever, if before you were notedly proud and there be no sensible difference in you, but you seem to be as haughty and high-spirited as ever, if you formerly were one that was a very envious, revengeful, quarrelsome temper, and still seem to be just as you used to be in this respect, as envious and contentious, as apt to stir up strife, as stiff and as willful, and as hot-spirited as ever, or whatever ill ways you had, whatever ill dispositions you were formerly under, especially under the prevailing of it. If there be no sensible alteration, you have reason to doubt whether there be any saving change in you. It is true that conversion doesn't root out the natural temper, though since that a man by his natural temper was most inclined to and most frequently committed, the same he will be most exposed to still. But yet conversion will make an alteration even with respect to those sins. Though grace, while imperfect, doesn't root out the natural temper, yet it will correct it. It will much correct the exorbitancies of it. All sin is mortified in conversion. There is a blow struck at the root of all sin in that work of the Spirit of God, and a man is delivered from the reigning power of all sin, constitution sins as well as others. And it is in vain to tell of worldliness and pride and malice being mortified in a man and is being delivered from the power of them. And yet the man that was worldly before still yet appears as worldly as ever. And the proud man is proud as ever. And the malicious man as malicious as ever. He that was notorious for worldliness before his conversion may after his conversion be most apt to err that way. And he that was an ill-natured, quarrelsome man before may now be more ready still to run into sins of that nature than others, but yet there will be an alteration in him. He won't be as worldly as he was before, neither will he be proud and malicious as he was before. Conversion mortifies sin so as to make a man to hate all sin, and he will hate his constitution sins as well as others. Yea, those will be likely to be the greatest burden, and what he will bend his face chiefly against. And therefore there will be, without doubt, an alteration that appears in him with respect to those sins. He won't be just as he was when sins were unmortified and not hated, but loved, though he may still be more apt to offend that way than any other. 
This is the end of part one of the sermon, Persons Ought Not to Rest, Ignorant, Real Christians or Not, Jonathan Edwards. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.